Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's Sue. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. It's great to be back with all of you. Um, We have a really great show tonight. Um, I'm pretty excited for my guest. Um, If if you're a regular listener to the show, you know how much I love brain science. So it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, Joining me in just a few minutes is Lisa Genova. Lisa is a neuroscientist, and she's also a best-selling novelist of five books, Um, one of which was made into a movie called Still Alice, and some of you may be familiar with that. If you're new to the show, be sure to stay with us during the breaks to hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors, bringing you their expertise in fields of health and law, finance, military affairs, and technology. And to learn more about our watch team and see who's coming up on the show next, feel free to visit our website, at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And don't forget to sign up for the podcast and our newsletter so you can stay in the loop. And now I'm very honored and excited to welcome to the show Lisa Genova. Lisa, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Sue, for having me. I think um, at the very top of the show, I want to give a shout out to my beautiful and talented niece, Lauren, um, D. Ferdinando, who connected the two of us. I believe you bought a beautiful piece from her gallery in the Cape. I did. Oh, she's so talented. And yes, I'm looking at it right now. It's this gorgeous uh, painting of glass bottles in my living room. Oh, yeah, she, she really is. So I, I just wanted to say thank you to her. Um, she put you on my radar initially. Um, so listen, I want to talk a little bit about your background and upbringing in, in, help me if I'm pronouncing this right, Waltham, Massachusetts? Waltham, yes. Waltham. Um, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about two things. One, I think, um, it's interesting that, that your parents, neither of them happened to go to college and you went on to get quite an extensive, um, academic background and degree and um and then talk to me a little bit about what it was like growing up in that big italian family well my dad went to college he went to northeastern university but never graduated um he had a 
requ- he had a requirement to take a foreign language, and I believe it was Russian, and he just didn't feel like it, so he never bothered finishing his requirements to graduate. Um, but my mom didn't go. Um, she was a stay-at-home mom. I have one brother, but I'm f- part of a really big Italian family. My dad's one of nine, and most of everyone lived in Waltham when I was growing up. Or, or nearby, at least. And so I always felt held by this amazing community of Genovas. Uh, <laughs> so it was, um, I, you know, you asked me for some major challenge I had in childhood, and I just sort of smiled thinking, like, I didn't really have one. Um, I grew up in a, Waltham was a very blue-collar town back then. It's a little more she-she and fancy now. Um, but it was primarily Irish and Italian immigrants or first or second generation Italians and Irish. Um, it's much more multicultural now, but it was, it was, you know, a sort of quote unquote normal childhood of the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Which was actually a great time to grow up. Don't you think the seventies particularly? Well, you know, I don't romanticize it though. I think that, you know, I would rather be a kid. Well, right now I feel for all the kids. I feel for all of us right now. My kids yes. have been home <laughs> since March. And it's, it's definitely, this is a moment that historically will say, remember 2020 and what we lived through. Um, but, well, the great parts of growing up in the 70s and 80s were we played outside. Uh, we we read books. We um, Life was simpler and sort of, invited the present moment more easily and that yes. I can only appreciate looking back but we also had like I don't know we had tv dinners and processed food and um, <laughs> we didn't have computers we'd you know, ask questions and you'd just never know like why is the sky blue <laughs> I don't know and you wouldn't know and now my kids ask questions and everybody you know races to look it up and find the answer and we share it and so you know there are pluses and minuses to every generation, I think. Yeah, that's so true, though, about, you know, I think um, as someone who is incredibly curious, I absolutely love Google and I'm speaking to it all day long. So that ability to have questions answered immediately is definitely a plus. And actually, I'm curious, you know, you as a young girl, it's clear, you know, reading your bio that you were gifted with book smarts. Um, You were valedictorian, summa cum laude, with degrees in biopsychology and a Ph.D. in neuroscience from Harvard. So when one reads that, they immediately have this idea of of who you are. I wanted to know, you know, where that drive came from. So that ability to continue to learn and to question um, and the the ability to retain knowledge, that kind of knowledge at at a high level. Mm. So, again, I think I I was born with a brain that works and just really lucky. And in the Genova family, there's a lot of us who um, can think really well and problem solve and have just sort of very analytical scientific minds. So there's a lot of us. And so I grew up very comfortable and confident in that identity. Um, and even as a young girl, there were my aunts, uh, the, my cousins, the women in my family in particular, you know, everybody's pretty bright, but the women are sort of outshine the men and are pretty exceptional. And so I, not that I took that for granted, but it was sort of a, a given that it was, 
this was kind of my birthright in some ways. Um, and I wasn't the pretty girl and I wasn't the, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, I loved playing sports and I'm so lucky that we had title nine growing up and I I got to play everything, but I wasn't a a star athlete by any means. Um, But I could, I could get A's. It came somewhat easily to me. So it wasn't so much driven um, that I had a plan or that I was going to conquer something. It was enjoyable for me to learn and I did well at it easily. And so it helped that, identity and that confidence and that this is my thing. This is what I'm good at. And I loved science. I loved learning about how the body works. And when I went to college, I took my first courses in how the brain works. And that blew me away from the start. So I was hooked, you know, from about the age of 18 on that I wanted to study the brain and understand how we think and feel and remember and desire. Mm, it's fascinating. Um, listen, we're going to take our first break. When we come back, I want to pick up right there with you. Stay with us for our military and health watch. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. Military watch. Very early in my Army enlistment, I was introduced to the Army values. These values tell all soldiers from private to general what we need to be every day in every action we take. They form the identity of America's army and are the bedrock upon which everything else stands. Those values are loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Together, they spell leadership, L-D-R-S-H-I-P. Now, values-based organizations hold themselves to a high standard and create a culture of giving back. Now more than ever, Comcast NBC Universal is committed to making a difference in the communities where our employees, customers, and audiences live and work. To illustrate how we're a positive force for building opportunity in these communities, we just released our 2020 Values Report, which highlights some of the key priorities that reflect our company's core values. One of these values is military engagement, and our story about Adam's Corner in this year's report highlights our commitment in this area. Adam's Corner was the brainchild of our employee, Cynthia Garcia, who works for Telemundo in Texas. Her son, Corporal Adam Garcia, was just 20 years old and serving in Iraq when he was fatally wounded in 2006. In the hours after Adam's injury, his family flew to see him in Germany, where they stayed at the local Fisher House, which is a home away from home for military families whose loved ones are receiving critical care. While Adam's parents sat by his hospital bed, His 12-year-old sister, Danielle, stayed at the Fisher house, but there wasn't much for her to do. So ever since that visit, Cynthia wanted a way to honor her late son and help kids like Danielle. When she brought up the idea to create a child-friendly space at Fisher houses called Adam's Corners, our VetNet employee group jumped right in to help. We've helped Cynthia install nine Adams Corners in Fisher houses across the country so far. These cozy nooks include beanbag chairs, games, and books for military children to have a place to play. Adams Corner is one of the many initiatives Comcast has championed this past year. So check out our full values report to read about more ways Comcast is helping our communities. Please visit corporate.comcast.com forward slash values to learn more. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. 
In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. We continue to learn about COVID as it evolves. For patients who recover, many experience weeks of fatigue and shortness of breath. And though it's too soon to know if patients will sustain permanent lung or heart damage, some may have a prolonged recovery. This morning on Your Radio Doctor, I had the chance to interview two physicians from Jefferson University Hospital who practice physical medicine and rehabilitation. COVID patients in the hospital are at bed rest and isolated with no one to help them get up and move. Prolonged bed rest can quickly lead to muscle atrophy, then weakness. You can lose one to 3% of muscle mass per day and up to 50% in two weeks. And that's if you're healthy to start. Even more debilitating in patients with other medical issues. The PM&R doctors came up with a great plan. Rather than starting physical therapy after recuperating, they get patients up and moving while they're still in the hospital. With protective gear, physical therapists do bedside therapy. They also made videos that patients could watch on the TV monitor and do gentle exercises in bed or a chair. How does bed rest cause debilitation and weakness? Well, muscle and bone are in a constant state of building up and breaking down. Physical activity and weight bearing trigger muscle and bone growth. No activity, no building, then atrophy and weakness. COVID patients in the hospital are often short of breath, so therapy has to be very gentle in short bursts. After discharge, they can gradually increase. Other issues where rehab can help COVID patients? Flexion contractures and stiff limbs can begin after only days at bed rest. Even the weight of a sheet on your feet causes changes in ankle muscles, making it harder to walk. So if you've had COVID and you're still weak or short of breath, ask your doctor about getting physical therapy. And remember, divas, use it or lose it, because if you're not moving, you're not grooving. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Lisa Genova this evening. She is a neuroscientist, a speaker, and an author of, of several novels. And just before the break, Lisa, you mentioned um, going to college and, and studying the brain and loving science. And... I think there's an ongoing question that most of us ask and are curious about, and that is how much of who we are is genetics and how much of who we are is um, our upbringing and our our environment and culture. I I just wonder if you have any take on that. Oh, absolutely. So the book I wrote about Huntington's disease, it's called Inside the O'Briens. I really explore that question throughout the whole book. So that disease is 100% genetic. So if my mom or dad had Huntington's, every kid in my family would have a 50-50 chance of inheriting it, the gene that causes Huntington's. And if you get that gene, you will get Huntington's. So in that sense, for that disease, it's 100% predetermined, faded in your genetic code. Um, But for most everything in life, other than some of these rare genetic diseases, our 
our personalities, our health, our our makeup, everything is a combination. It's an interplay between the genes that you inherited and how you live. And probably the percentages of those two in every different person is, is different. You know, it's not straight across the board. No, absolutely not. And so, so and yet some things, there was a movie, and I'm not going to remember the title. It was a documentary about triplets who are separated at birth and put up for adoption in the New York area. And, and then they meet much later in life as adults. And it was fascinating to see some of the things that were so similar about them. Um, and so that, that couldn't be due to nurture. That had to be due to nature and, and their, what their genes that they inherited. And yet they're you know, very different people because they grew up living completely different environments and circumstances. So your, your life is not predetermined by your DNA, but this is the recipe, the ingredients that get you started in the interplay of your environment, your relationships, what happens to you. So, Lisa, one of the things I think you do so beautifully in your books is you explore both, you know, the brain science and the human spirit. And I wanted to ask you what you've learned through that exploration that surprised you the most. Oh, gosh, this is a great question. Um, so I definitely... I feel like I've become a better person with every book I write. I am writing about neurological conditions, but they can't just be about that. They're always about the human condition. And, and so I, I think, and this, this is a common thread. I think that with every book I write, what surprises me, it shouldn't at this point, because I do see it again and again is, you know, I'm, I'm getting to know people. So the research I do for my books, in addition to, talking to all the health professionals and reading everything I can. I, I, I talk to the real experts, which are the people who have the neurological diseases and conditions and um, the, the people who love them. And, and every time it's these, the people who have Alzheimer's or ALS or, or Huntington's, it's, they have framed their situation in such a way that it doesn't sink them, um, that they shift how they hold what's going on in such a way that they can see the gifts, um, that they can see the blessings, that they can focus on the love and what they still have and who they still are. And so without being Pollyanna or, you know, romanticizing any of this, because, you know, the losses are profound and devastating and real and the grief and these diseases are horrible. Um, And yet people don't live the tragedy of their diagnosis 24 seven. And so over and over, I am, I am awestruck by um, how people choose to live from a place of love rather than fear, even in the scariest of circumstances. Wow. Um, You know, one of your books, Still Alice was adapted into a film starring Julianne Moore. Uh, Many people are familiar with it uh, about a woman who suffers from Alzheimer's. And I think I shared with you, I I just lost my mom to Alzheimer's um, during the pandemic, which was incredibly hard. Um, And what struck me, oh, thank you. You know, what struck me the most in being with her throughout her illness was 
she absolutely knew that we were the ones that loved her when we mm-hmm. walked into the room. Right. So even at the very end, not knowing our names and really not knowing who she was, you could see that smile and that recognition. Do you, do you think that is true of, of Alzheimer's patients, that there's a kind of an internal knowing of the people that that love them? Oh, 100%. And you just described my grandmother who had Alzheimer's. It was the inspiration for me writing any novel ever. Um, yes. So Alzheimer's is going to steal all eventually all of your memories, and it's going to rob your ability to problem solve and regulate your emotions. And you won't remember what I said a minute ago, and you won't remember any of your childhood eventually. But it never and does not rob your ability to feel love, joy, sadness, anger, belonging. Um, So it doesn't rob you of your ability to feel these very human emotions and connection. And so, yes, like my grandmother had no idea who we were. She didn't know. She really didn't know who she was. She didn't recognize her home. She didn't recognize her face in the mirror. But she knew we loved her and she loved us Mm. back. And um, that's important to maintain. You know, so many folks will say to me, like, you know, well, my dad's in a nursing home with Alzheimer's and he doesn't know who I am anymore. And he won't even remember that I was there. So I haven't been to see him in a really long time. I feel bad about this, but you know, I kind of don't see what the point would be. And, and I understand that, but the point that I try to offer to folks is he probably won't remember that you were there, but he'll remember how you made him feel. Mm. Yes. It's, it's almost like emotions are stronger. Yeah. Emotions are stronger than memory. Oh, of course. So have you ever had an argument with someone in the morning, someone you love in the morning, and, and, and you still feel in it by late afternoon? And you might not even remember the content of what was said, but you just right. still feel angry. Or you had a yes. beautiful exchange in the morning, right? A really loving moment, and you just feel good the rest of the day. So the emotional residue lingers. That emotional yeah. memory lasts beyond whatever, you know, the words were that were said. So like with someone with Alzheimer's, they're not going to remember what you said, but they'll feel what you gave them. And and that's worth it. That matters. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, Speaking with Lisa Genova, we're going to go into our next break. Stay with us for our legal watch and our finance watch. Now, Now, the women to watch. Legal watch. Legal watch. This is Nicole Hittner from Ballard Spar Law Firm for Legal Watch. It's not hard to imagine that the circumstances surrounding COVID-19 have led to an unprecedented wave of distressed mergers and acquisitions transactions, along with a meaningful shift in the bargaining power from sellers to buyers. Ballard is uniquely situated to help companies in both positions as we have a strong bankruptcy team along with our nationally recognized M&A group. The distressed deal environment impacts the way deals are done and the players involved. While businesses are forced to evaluate the choice between trying to weather the storm and transitioning the company to a ready buyer, buyers are looking for companies they can rescue, stabilize, and grow. Buyers are pushing harder than ever for asset transactions in lieu of stock deals because of the unknown liability connected with government-funded programs sellers sought and potential liabilities caused by other last-ditch efforts to stay afloat. The bottom line is that there are solid companies that are or will be on the market, and if buyers move quickly, the investment can be great. In a distressed transaction, however, there are considerations to keep your eye on, including successor liability and fiduciary duties to stakeholders. 
navigating these potential traps is what Ballard excels at. We're at the forefront of the issues and legal implications of the distressed deal environment, and we're here to help. This is Nicole Hittner at Ballard's Bar for your Legal Watch. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. This is Terry, and this is Maggie, and we're from Fortis Wealth. It's back to school time already. Maggie, this time of year, we remind our families and clients about the importance of a health care power of attorney for their college students. You're right. What is that about? Parents are probably already aware of the privacy or HIPAA laws. If you have children in college, you also know that those laws dictate that information such as grades cannot be shared with parents, even though they're probably footing the bill. You may not have considered how privacy laws relate to a medical situation. Sounds like it's not good. Well, no parent wants to think about their child being admitted to a hospital while away at school, but it's a good practice to prepare for the worst. The last thing you want to hear from the hospital staff is that they cannot provide any information on your child's status and that you have no power to make decisions on their behalf. Without a health care proxy, that's exactly what could happen. What a potential nightmare. It's my understanding that this document allows someone to appoint another person to access his or her health care records, make medical decisions, and advocate on his or her behalf. Is that right? Yes, it is. Parents generally have this authority over their children while they're underage, but once the student reaches age 18, the federal HIPAA privacy laws prevent parents from having access to any medical information. A properly executed health care power of attorney gives the parent this ability. Does it matter if the child is attending college outside of their home state? It's good practice to complete a state-approved form in both the home state and the state where the child attends college. It should also be provided to the college health care center. Where can we find these forms? Each state has approved generic forms and or approved language that can be used by your legal advisors to provide customized documents for you. Most states make their forms and language available on the state government website. So, dear listeners, we highly encourage you to add these very important documents to your list of things to check off for your college student. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. Peace out. I'm speaking with Lisa Genova this evening. Excuse me, she is a neuroscientist and an an author of some incredible books. Um, And you know, Lisa, you did a very uh, famous TED Talk. It was viewed more than four million times, which says a lot about um, the subject matter. And I I feel as though when people um, decide to do that, that they really feel they have something to say and, and something to share. When did you realize that what you have learned and what you know about, um, was it specifically Alzheimer's or, or mental illnesses in general? Um, are you asking me what my TED talk was about? Or Yes, yes. I'm just, if, if I recall, it was about Alzheimer's. It was, right. So I, yeah. you know, I'm writing about many different 
um, neurological diseases and conditions. And actually, right now, my next novel is going to be about someone with bipolar disorder, um, so moving into mental illness. Oh, wow. Um, wow. But that that particular TED Talk, the one you're referring to, because I've done a couple, that one is about Alzheimer's and what we can do to prevent it. Um, so right. there's this... I've been talking about still Alice and Alzheimer's for over a decade, and there's a lot of misinformation and misconceptions and confusion about how our memories work and what actually is Alzheimer's and how, how at risk are you and is there anything you can do to influence at risk? So you asked this great question earlier about, you know, how much of our lives is determined by our DNA and how much is due to our environment and how we live. And so for Alice and still Alice, I gave her a very rare form of Alzheimer's that is 100% genetic. So it didn't matter what she did in life, she was going to get Alzheimer's. But for 98% of folks with this disease, it's, it's caused by a combination of how you live and what you've inherited, the risk factors. So even if you've inherited some risk factors from your mom and dad that, that will increase your likelihood of developing Alzheimer's, you're not going to get it from that alone. It's how you live that contributes to whether or not you get it. And so there are things you can do to prevent it. And so that talk is really about what we can do um, and that Alzheimer's is not our brain's destiny. So as somebody who has a a true inside look into um, what is often, you know, terminal disease, I, I am curious if you find yourself thinking about it yourself? Are you, are you afraid? Do you look into the future um, and have to kind of, you know, pull yourself back from doing that? No, I mean, so my grandmother had Alzheimer's. And so, you know, I, I, she had, was she was diagnosed in her 80s. She likely had Alzheimer's symptoms five to 10 years before that. And we all as a family were in denial and chalked it up to normal forgetting due to normal aging, um, which is pretty common. Um, And then she probably had the disease process that, you know, with amyloid plaques accumulating in her brain 10 to 15 years before that, which is how it works. We all start developing the disease biologically without having any symptoms for at least a decade. Um, But that all said, she did not have early onset Alzheimer's. So her Alzheimer's is caused by DNA and environment. Um, so I know I'm not guaranteed to get it. Um, I did do the 23andMe health version, and I got tested for the APOE4 gene, which increases your likelihood of developing Alzheimer's. And I got that test assuming that I would have it, and I did not. So I don't have that added increased risk of Alzheimer's. And part of the reason I, I chose to find out whether I did carry the APOE4 gene because there are clinical trials going on now that ask for folks who've got that APOE4 gene variant and risk factor to be part of trials that are going to help us get to treatments and survivors. So I thought it was important for me um, as someone who was potentially at risk due to you know family members who have it to know if I could participate in helping end this disease. Um, I also, I, but I don't, to answer your question, I don't fear it. Even if I had the APOE4 gene or even if I, you know, assumed that I'm going to get this someday, um, for a couple of reasons. One, I, um, I believe we're going to see, uh, Alzheimer's survivors in, in my lifetime. I think we're going to have a preventative treatment it will probably be a combination of drugs and 
lifestyle choices. So, and what I mean by that is, you know, people are used to thinking about their heart health and how they can prevent themselves from having a heart attack someday. Um, we, as, as a world, need to start to think about brain health and what we can do to help ourselves from the neck up. And so it's, it's at least uh, seven to nine hours of sleep a night. It's uh, heart-healthy diet, so the Mediterranean or mind diet. Um, it is uh, reducing stress, so meditation, mindfulness, yoga, um, learning new things, staying mentally, cognitively active and curious. So armed with those things, I'm, I'm not afraid. I believe that the science is um, going to get there. I'm not discouraged at all. If you think about how much your cell phone has changed in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years and what you're able to do in the palm of your hand, we're all like James Bond now. Similarly, in medical technology, <laughs> we just didn't have the yeah. tools 20 years ago to, to, to solve this problem. And we really do now. So the scientists who are working on this and have dedicated their lives to curing Alzheimer's, I really believe we're going to get there soon. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Really, yeah. it's, a, it's a good, good positive note to go into our last break. I'm speaking with Lisa Genova, neuroscientist and author and speaker. And stay with us for our Tech Watch. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. I read an article that suggested that recruitment issues will potentially harm IT modernization efforts. Recruiting more women in the technology industry can only help. But, as I've discussed in the past, the participation of women in the technology industry has declined in the past 20 years. And it's the one STEM discipline where the participation of women hasn't increased. Did you know that a lack of women in technology can lead to a decrease in performance and profits, creating a missed opportunity for businesses? Greater gender diversity in technology impacts businesses' bottom line, as research from Morgan Stanley indicates. Ensuring that there's a good balance of women leading and working in the workplace just makes for good business. A field experiment published in Management Science found that teams with an equal gender mix had better sales and profits than male-dominated teams. So, why does gender diversity lead to better performance? It's called collective intelligence. Pierre Levy once said that collective intelligence is the capacity of human collectives to engage in intellectual cooperation in order to create, innovate, and invent. So, that should mean that when you add women to a group, the presence of women leads to a higher collective intelligence, which in turn strengthens the group's ability to solve problems, build solutions, and come up with ideas. Higher gender diversity teams not only enjoy better returns, but companies that adopt gender diversity could more likely outperform companies that don't. If we're going to increase the amount of women in the technology industry, we have to start to consider how we change our approach. It will require strategies that appeal to the values and lifestyles of women. I'd love to share your thoughts on this topic in the future, so please email me at mary at pathwayscg.com with your ideas and input. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. 
they execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at WomenToWatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's Women, the number two, Watch.net, N-E-T. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Lisa Genova. Um, Lisa, I I wanted to ask you about your your own legacy. You know, when you have an opportunity to be in front of thousands and thousands of, or we'll say millions of people, um, and speak to them directly on on different topics, I wonder if you give thought to your your own legacy and what you hope that might be. Hmm. So I. I speak a lot in front of thousands of people. And one of the ways that I get grounded with my intention before I get on stage and it helps me get the focus sort of off of me, so I don't get nervous um, is to, to the prayer goes something like this, like let something I say tonight land in someone who really needs to hear it. Let what I have to say, change people and give them the information they need to go through what they're going through with a little more ease, a little more comfort, knowing they're not alone. Um, just let something I say help. And so mm-hmm. that's the legacy. I think that, you know, so many of these diseases and disorders of the brain in particular tend to be carry so much stigma and shame. And there's so much confusion and alienation and isolation that people live with on top of the difficulty that, is the disease itself. People are burdened with um, no longer belonging, being excluded from community because what you have is scary and unfamiliar and strange. And so part of what my legacy, I hope, is that I'm demystifying these these diseases and, and disorders and conditions, that I am helping to humanize and and help people see the ways in which we're all the same because people with, you know, Alzheimer's or bipolar or autism, they tend to be otherized. Like, Oh, you have something that's not like me. And, and so I look the other way because I get uncomfortable because what you have makes me so uncomfortable and I can't tolerate my own discomfort. I'm just going to look away and there I feel better. And so I think through these stories and, and through the education and humanizing um, these experiences through story, we get to develop empathy and familiarity. And that helps us not be uncomfortable around someone who at first glance is different. And so we can be still and, and don't go into fight or flight and welcome people back into community and belonging. Yeah, I love that. I love how you say that. And I would say, too, that, you know, one of the things that's um, different today from when we were speaking earlier about the 70s and growing up is is the conversations that we're having around people from all walks and with all different kinds of issues. Um, and things were much more secretive, I think, years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We played into a anything. stigma. Yeah, right. absolutely. So I, I say that I say this all the time. I believe that Story is a vehicle for conversation and conversation fuels social change. If we don't mm. talk about Alzheimer's, if we don't talk about mental illness, if we don't talk about autism, well, then it doesn't exist. So we have to talk about these things in order to to welcome people back into community, to cause 
social change that invites, you know, um, funding for research or funding for resources and care um, to to give people back their dignity and their and their sense of worthiness. Um, so yes, we didn't speak things in the seventies and before that. Remember, everybody didn't even talk about cancer. We we called it the big C. We whispered, right. <laughs> and nobody talked about it. And then we were right. and go for walks and organize meal trains. And, and something changed. Yeah. And the, the change was we began to speak about it. And right. you know, it's not, no, no coincidence that we now have cancer treatments and cancer survivors. And so for any of these, you know, brain diseases and disorders and, and mental illness, like if we want survivors, if we want therapeutics for autism and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. If we want these things, we need to be in conversation about it. We need to humanize so that we're not afraid um, and that we can, we can sort of wrap our brains and hearts around people who have it. So it's a person living with a neurological disease. It's not, you know, statistics and numbers. It's, it's a human experience. Right. And I would say what you, you do is even the most important, talking to the people directly that are suffering from it. Right. You probably yeah. that's where you're going to learn the most as opposed to, you know, reading about the disease in books. But um, what's the oh, personal sure. experience from someone who's suffering from it? Um, yes. And those me- are always my, my real experts. And all of my books yeah. take on their point of view. And that's intentional. So, you know, when my grandmother had Alzheimer's and I read everything I could about it as a neuroscientist and my family to better understand it, I, I saw, I noticed that everything was written from the perspective of an outsider. So I learned from clinicians and scientists and caregivers and social workers. And what was missing was the perspective of the person who lives with it. And so I, that's what I do in my writing for every book. And I should mention for the listeners um, who may not have read the books, there why why fiction? Why fictional stories? Well, I think that that fictional stories are the safest way into an, an uncomfortable conversation or a, a, a subject that you may find unfamiliar or intimidating or scary. So. Using still Alice and Alzheimer's as, a, as an example, you know, Alzheimer's is a pretty heavy, scary, depressing subject. And if I were to offer, if you know, if you, if you're not intimately involved in Alzheimer's, if you know, you don't have a family member with this, and I said to you, hey, do you want to read a nonfiction book about Alzheimer's? You're not raising your hand to do that. But if I say, hey, I've got a story about a woman with Alzheimer's, and the story is about much more than that. It's, you know, the story is about identity and family and how do we matter. But if I say it's a novel, well, you might pick that up and read it. And so Mm. I write stories because they're accessible to the general public. And and what I want to do is I want the people who live these diseases and disorders to feel seen and heard, to know that they're not alone. And I want people who have no knowledge or familiarity with these diseases and disorders to find a way to understand it, to find their way to empathy. So story novels and story are, are, I think, the quickest path to empathy. So it's not just enough to know about Alzheimer's. I want you to feel something about it. And I don't want you to feel for someone. I don't want you to feel bad for my grandmother. I don't want you to feel bad for Alice. And I don't, 
like that's sympathy. I want you to be able to feel with her. I want you to be able to feel what she feels, and that's empathy. And empathy is this is magic. Empathy is our way is how we connect with each other as human beings. Mm. Um, you know what, Lisa? We just have a minute left. Let's talk about the pandemic real quick. How have you been managing? You know what what's kind of your day to day, and what can you share with us about your views on uh, whether it's treatment or a vaccine? Uh, Where well, do you see it going? You know, I mean, I know that's yeah. Every day is the same day. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, I'm grateful to be healthy, and I'm grateful, you know, to all of the first responders and the medical professionals and everyone who's out there risking their lives to save others and to get this under control. And I'm grateful to everyone who's wearing masks and you know trying. I just you know can't wait to get our lives back. Um, yeah. And I said to you earlier, it's like we're all running this marathon, but we don't know how many miles it is. So it's really hard yeah. to pace yourself. So how long will this go? Um, I've got three kids home, um, my 20-year-old back from Georgetown and, and, and my middle schooler and my elementary schooler. And, and so it's, it's been challenging wow. for us all to be wow. hunkered down. Um, in terms of vaccine and, and um, you know, I don't, I don't know. And that, that's the honest answer anyone can give. Hopefully we'll have one so that we don't live this next year. Yeah, that uh, we're all looking yeah. forward to next year. Um, Lisa, oh, thanks so much. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for joining me this evening. I'm glad we finally got you on the show and I hope you stay yes. in touch. Yes. You too. Thank That's you so it. much, Sue. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you so much to our watch team and sponsors for their support. And thanks for continuing to tune in every week to hear women sharing their amazing stories. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.